You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Romans, presented by Bill Smith. Well, today we're going to take a look at the last section of Romans 8, where Paul is making this argument about our completeness in Christ. And so, let's just read together. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sore? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Last verse didn't come up there. Okay. We'll go through all this again. For some reason, that didn't show up. So, we are in this um, last section of Romans 8, 38, or 28 through 39. And if we were to take a look at the big picture of Romans, we might see it sort of in five sections. The first few chapters are about our need for salvation, or that we're born in this condition of sin. The second section we looked at is how to become saved, or the way of salvation. And the section we're in now, which would be the life of salvation. The next two sections will do with the scope of salvation. And the last section I like to refer to as the privilege or opportunities we get of being saved, which we would call service. So this last section of Romans 8, Paul's making this argument that we're already complete. And this is sort of the triumphant summary of that whole entire section. So... As we take a look at this section, I want to keep in mind that's what we're talking about now, which is this whole opportunity that we have that we're already complete in Christ. And so Paul does a summary of what what we have in Christ. And so very quickly, everything will work out. We are being conformed to the image of, of Christ. We will be glorified. God freely gives us all things. No one can condemn us. The Son of God is right now sitting at the hand of the Father pleading our case. And one more thing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, including all of these things right here. So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, pearl, sword, death, or life, angels, principalities, powers, present, future, height, or depth. And I like this last phrase. Or any other created thing. It's referring to these created things here. So a little bit later we're going to talk about the present and the future as time being a created thing that can also not separate us from the love of God. So we're going to go through these verses sort of one at a time, or some of them I'll sort of hook together. We'll go back to this first one. Uh, How many of you already knew this verse, have this one sort of memorized? It's one of the more popular verses in the Bible. 
that nothing can separate us. Um, all things work to good of those who love God. Every time I look at this verse, I'm, I'm impressed by this first few words, and we know that. The way Paul that, starts that out, he doesn't start it out with, it might be true, maybe this is a possibility. He states this in a very declarative sense, that this is true. We already know this. This verse reminds me of an old story I heard about a farmer in China. It actually, actually starts out once upon a time. There was a farmer in the central region of China, and he didn't have a lot of money. Instead of a tractor, he used an old horse to plow his field. One afternoon, while working in the field, the horse dropped dead. And everyone in the village, they said, Oh, what a horrible thing to happen to this poor farmer. But the farmer was simple in his reply. He said, We'll see. And the farmer was so at peace and so serene that everyone was impressed that they got together. Because of his attitude, they bought him a new horse so he could plow his field. And when that happened, then all the village said, oh, what a lucky man. And the farmer said, we'll see. And then a few days later, his horse jumps over the fence and runs away. And everyone in the village said, oh, what a poor, unfortunate fellow. And the farmer said, we'll see. And a few days later, the horse came back. And everyone in the village said, oh, what a fortunate man. And the farmer said, we'll see. And a few days later... His son went out riding on the horse, and he fell, and he broke his leg. And the villager said, oh, what a shame for the boy. And the farmer said, we'll see. And then a few weeks after that, the Chinese army came in, forcibly drafting people into the army. But when they saw the boy's leg was broken, they didn't draft him. And so the villager said, what a fortunate young man. And the farmer said, we'll see. <laughs> Exactly right. You see, the moral of the story is there's really no use in overreacting to anything that comes into our lives. You see, every circumstance that comes into our life, even though it may look like a setback, may actually be a gift in disguise. When our hearts are in the right place, all these events and circumstances start to be seen as really gifts to us, the good and the bad. There's a famous Italian friar who said, everything we call a trial, a sorrow, a burden, a duty, Believe me, the gift is there, and the wonder of an overshadowing presence is there as well. I know many of you could tell stories. I could as well of all the times in our lives when things seemed to go wrong. I want to find out later, that was the best thing that could have happened to me. But in the moment, we weren't saying that. In the moment, we were maybe sad or whatever, but these things always work out for the good. In fact, this is an area of our own development, isn't it? to become more and more like that farmer who was really being like Jesus, who would say, we'll see, to get to a point where when something goes bad, we can be thankful in that moment that it's going wrong because nothing is really going wrong from God's perspective. And so this is another area where we can capture an identity for ourselves that we are in Christ. Scott pointed out two weeks ago, it's really important to get a hold of our identity. And many of these verses, even in this section, seem to indicate we are in Christ. Now, I know it looks like we're in this building right now. But from God's perspective, we are in his son. And I guess the question to ask is, whose perspective on reality would be more accurate? God's or ours? So it looks like we're here, but we're really not. We're in his son. And so when these things come into our lives, 
Um, they're all for our good, even though it might be painful or we might suffer in the moment. We can still hold on to this hope. And this isn't the only place where this is talked about. Some of you who hang around me know I'm always talking about James. This is a very important verse to me in the Bible when James says, Consider it all joy when you um, encounter various, various trials and tribulations, knowing that it's for what? The perfecting of your faith. But I find that interesting. He says, Count it joy when things are going wrong. So the Bible always comes at things sort of the opposite the world does, doesn't it? Count it joy when you encounter trials and tribulation. I love that way he, ver- he verses that. Count it joy. He's also saying, look at it this way. Think about it this way. Take this view of it. Draw this conclusion. Make this determination. Take this decision. I've talked about this a little bit before, by the way. This is also good psychological advice we get from the spiritual side of who we are. You may remember me talking about perception. All life starts with perception. We see things, we experience things, and we make a decision in that moment about whether it's good or bad, safe or unsafe, positive or negative. Once we form that perception, there's our choice, there's our will. Our system creates a belief around that, which is then structured as a thought, which we rationalize about it, which creates an emotion, and emotion creates behavior. And James and Paul are both telling us, when we make a perception, how should we perceive these things going on? It's all going to work out for good. There's various people in the Bible who demonstrate that for us. Like when Joseph was sold into slavery. When Job has his problems. You just make that decision in the moment. Of course, everybody around you might think you're crazy, but that's their problem, right? It's all working out for good. So we make that choice. We can ask when things go wrong, why me, Lord? Besides me, who else has asked that question? Why me, Lord? Or we can say, thank you, Lord, for this event in my life, because I know. Just like Paul says, we know. I know you're working out your purpose. Now, I also am honest with God. I will also say to him, I'm not saying I'm enjoying this. <laughs> this hurts. This is scary to me. I'm not liking it. However, I hold on fast to your word that this will work out for the good. That's our choice. That's our perception. I so appreciate Julie sharing with us last week her difficulty in praying that night after Joseph Adam was born. Remember all she could say? Help. That's all she could say. The reason that prayer was so effective is because she knows the name of God. His name, one of his names is Helper. She would have never said that word if he, she didn't already know he has a name called Helper. You know, when you're not sure what to pray or how to pray for anything, the simplest and perhaps the best thing to do is just to start praising God anyway, calling out his names and his attributes. Because there's no situation that you can get yourself into or that someone can put you into that God doesn't already have a name for it. He's already taken care of all those things. So this next verse says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he justified. And who he justified, he also glorified. Now, in those two verses, if you'll notice there, he's talking about future events in the past tense, as though they've already happened. This was also common in the Old Testament, refer to a coming prophetic event with such assurance that the writers would talk about it as though it had already happened. Last week, there was this game where two football teams got together. They called it the Super Bowl. I don't know if you know about this or not. 
But um, there was this one team that got the most points, and they won. And right after the game, they put on hats that said Super Bowl champion. Now, either they had extremely fast hat-making capability, <clears throat> which I doubt. What I think more likely happened is they printed up where those hats went beforehand as though the game was already over. This is what Paul is telling us here. The game is already over. There's application here for us to think about things as already done. In other words, do I think of myself as trying to become holy, or do I think of myself as already holy? Do I think of myself as a sinner saved by grace, or do I think of myself as a saint who already sinned? You choose the perception. Whichever one you choose, create your belief, thought, emotion, behavior. Guess how sinners behave? They sin. Guess how saints behave? They saint. It's a new, I made up a verb form of that word, okay? Saint, go around and saint. We're sainting up. And then there's that word predestination. In, in confidence, I'll tell you, last week, Julie and I talked, she says, I'm glad you have the predestination thing. And <laughs> it's like a Christian landmine. It's like... <laughs> so moving on. <laughs> Something about predestination in there. It's kind of confusing. But um, let's, let's talk about it a little bit because we're really dealing with this issue of time. If we go over to John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we have past tense verbs here, which makes sense because it's talking about a past tense event, something in the past. But if we look at the first verse, in the beginning was the word. He's saying that before the beginning started, the word already existed. So the beginning started at some point. We can read that verse that way, that the beginning started and the word already existed. And so when God says, let there be light, those were his words, and Jesus is the word of God, so we have Jesus in the second verse of the Bible. When God said, let there be light, those are words he had to say in order for the beginning to start. We get these hints in different places of the scripture that time is a created thing. Even in this passage, we're in Romans 8, in the 39th verse. So we're going to try to get our heads around this concept of time. See, I used to think, and I know many people often think, that eternity is sort of an extension that's screwed on to the end of our life when we die, right? But you know, eternity is just the absence of time. The first time I heard that, part of my brain exploded, flew right out. <laughs> time is, is a weird thing to try to get our handle around. It's just this absence of time. It might help to try to think of time from God's perspective if, that's a possible thing to do. We might think of it as a film rolled out on the floor and God can see the whole entire thing. And he can enter any frame he wants to to change the story. He's seen all the possibilities and he's got the story, the movie, the way that he wants it. And if we change our minds in any of those frames, he can go to some later frames and change that too. He has control of the whole entire thing. Two weeks ago, I was in the Audi VW headquarters building in Herndon. And I happened to see them previewing the Super Bowl commercial they were going to show. I don't know if you saw that with the prom. The kid goes to the prom. They had three possible endings, and everybody voted on the ending they wanted to do. So the kid drives to the prom. He's so confident. He goes in, and he kisses the prom queen. And the end of the commercial, we see him driving away with a black eye. 
because the prom king apparently punched them out. So they saw all the possibilities of the endings and they voted. They were in a sense sort of playing God, weren't they? This is how we want this to end. I like to watch movies. Unfortunately, spend a little bit too much time watching movies. But, you know, even though I might watch the same movie over and over, which completely confounds my wife. Didn't you already see this? Yeah, five times before. And I'm going to watch it again. Because every time I still get excited or I laugh at different parts, I still get frustrated when I'm watching that movie Salt and they let the, that CIA chief go down in the bunker. I'm like, don't let that guy go down in the bunker. He's going to kill you. He's going to take over the nuclear arsenal. But they do it every time I watch that movie. <laughs> if I were God watching that, I would be like, no, 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 that ain't happening. Boom, he's dead. And the rest of the movie would change. That's sort of how God is interacting with time. He can change it whenever he wants to. So time is, is a bit of a, an interesting thing that we're trying to figure out. We've all experienced time in different ways. For example, when you're sick, what happens to time when you're sick, Melanie? Speed up or slow down? It ends. <laughs> time slows down. It's sort of like seconds become minutes, minutes become hours. It just slows down so much. And, and it seems to fly when you're having fun. There's a song, a funny song I like. I forget who it's by, but it might be actually a little story about a man who asks God, what's, what's a million dollars to you? And God says, it's a penny. He says, well, well, God, what's a million years to you? And God says, a second. So the man says, well, God, would you give me a penny? And God says, sure, just wait a second. <laughs> In 1905, Einstein published his theory of special relativity, which put, put forth a very startling idea. There is no preferred frame of reference. Everything, including time, is relative. The physicists are now telling us that if we travel near the speed of light, Time would slow down for us, but remain the same for those on earth. So when we come back, everybody else would be older. I think when we're sick, maybe we're traveling near the speed of light. It's slowing down. I'm not sure what's going on there, but there's a lot of mind-boggling research with respect to time. Uh, two scientists may have developed a pill that interacts with a part of the brain that experiences time, which could actually have a useful application for those who are in pain or chronic suffering. The day would seem to fly by from their perspective. Some other scientists have actually been able to mask bits of time in a very small confined space where time accelerates, which would have a medical application. So instead of waiting 24 hours for a culture to grow in a petri dish, it would be just in a few minutes. So this time is sort of an amazing thing of what's happening with it. We count on time. We count time. We rely on time. We save time, invest time, spend time, manage time, schedule time, give time, and waste time, sometimes time and time again. And meanwhile, time keeps on slipping into the future. That's why there's no time like the present. And yet, every day really isn't 24 hours. There's only 23 hours, 56 minutes, and 4 seconds. That's why every 4 years, we have to have a February 29th to make up for lost time. Time is a strange thing. Personally, I don't have time for all that. <laughs> After all, apparently, this past December 21st, time stopped. So we're not growing any older. That's what I'm claiming on that one right there. My father always used to say, for the past 40 years of his life until he died, he always used to tell us he's living on borrowed time. Now, I don't know if he had to pay that back to somebody when he died, but if he did, I'm sure what my dad did is gave him Time magazine and said, here, read this now or even. The problem is, we're trying to understand what a building looks like while we're in one of the rooms. 
It's a difficult thing to get our, our heads around this time issue. In Exodus, God sends Moses to speak to the Israelites, but Moses is hesitant. And he says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I tell them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And if they ask me, what is his name, what shall I tell them? And God says, tell them, I am has sent you. God calls himself, I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. This is another hint about time. I think God is telling us about his perspective around something he created. He can exist outside of it. He can exist in it. But for him, otherwise, everything is always now. Emmanuel, God with us. There is another situation where time slows down and even seems to stop. And that's when we're with God. When we get truly with God and we be here right now with him. That's why I always pray, Lord, I am here. I am ready. I am listening. Speak to me now. At that point, there is no time, is there? There's just experience. That's all there is. But I think the more interesting part of that, besides all this predestination stuff, the cool part of all that is that we are being conformed to the image of his son. We are all going to... That's being molded there. It's a little fuzzy. We are all going to look like Jesus. And this is happening to us right now. Last Sunday in that Super Bowl game, apparently the two coaches were both brothers. When they stood side by side, you could tell it, couldn't you? You know, when we get to heaven, we stand by Jesus, we're going to look like him too. That's what our Father is doing to all of his children. He's conforming us to the image of his Son. Remember, before the fall, Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God. After the fall in Genesis 3, the review shows we're created only in God's likeness, not in his image. But here in Romans and also in 2 Corinthians 3, it says we are now being transformed into the same image as Jesus. This is happening to us right now. Creation's being restored. This next session I, I think of as a sort of answer me this. Paul moves into what we call the Socratic method. He starts asking lots of questions to the reader to get them to think for themselves, which I so appreciate. One of my hesitancies of becoming a Christian was that it looked like Christians threw their brains out and stopped thinking about things. In fact, a lot of my friends said the same thing. But it's quite the opposite, isn't it? Asking lots of questions of us. People often say, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this or that. And I say, yeah, but be ready for his questions, by the way. (laughs) He might have some for you. You may want to think about that, right? So what shall we say to these things if God is for us? I'm not going to read through all that we've already read it, but you see all the question marks? Uh, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who condemns? Who's going to separate us? These are a lot of good questions that Paul is really bringing a strong argument home about all of this. And this particular phrase, if God is for us, who can be against us? If any of you are students of John Calvin, you would know that was his life verse. If you want to live a life of greater confidence, dwell on that verse right there. If God is for me, who can be against me? That's the point he's making. That's the summary he's making about all that. But oftentimes we leave off that first part, right? What shall we say to all these things? In other other versions, other translations, like the NLT says, what can we say about such wonderful things as these? The Philip says, in the face of all this, what is there left to say? What I love about this verse is as we meditate on it, all of our fears will begin to dissipate. All of our anxieties will start to melt away. Our worries come to an end. 
And we'll say, we'll see. So even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Oh, this verse looks like a quid pro quo. Whenever you see if, Julie talked about this last week, the if-then convention, it's called a quid pro quo. This is a little different. This word if, in this phrase, if God is for us, is a different word than is normally used for a, a, a typical if-then statement. I teach negotiation, and when I negotiate with clients, I will say, if you will commit to and pay for up front six months of professional coaching, then I will give you a discount. I'm not saying I'm giving you a discount. I'm saying it's a possibility that you can get a discount. It's not in existence yet. But this version of if is more like since. Since this is, God's already given the discount. He's already made his move. If God be for us, who could be against us? So, as we begin to dwell on this, if God is for us, who can be against us, we see this relaxation coming into our lives. One of the early church fathers, an archbishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, it's hard for me to pronounce, he was known for preaching against the abuse of authority. And eventually that brought him in front of the Roman emperor who wanted him to reject Christianity. And of course, uh, the archbishop refused to do so. And so the, the emperor said, well, then I'm going to banish you. And the archbishop said, you can't banish me, for this world is my father's home. So the emperor said, then I will slay you. And the bishop replied, no, you can't, for my life is hidden with Christ and God. So the emperor said, well, then I'll take away all your treasures. And the bishop said, mm, you can't do that, for my treasure is in heaven where my heart is. So the emperor said, then I'm going to drive you away from man and you'll have no friend left. And the bishop said, sorry, that's impossible as well. You see, I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. And so, this next verse, who he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us as well. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This is perhaps the most weighty part of the whole entire argument. If you still have questions after this statement, I'd really like to see what you're going to argue next. You see, let's get real here. God didn't even spare his own son. So do you think for a moment that he's not going to provide for every need you have? Really? You still think that? You're dreaming. If that's not making a declaration, if that's not taking a stand, if that's not love, please tell me what it is. Because that's it right there. And just as a reminder, he provides for all of our needs, not our, not our greeds. And then Paul's going to take us into the courtroom. And he's going to continue to talk about who's going to bring a charge against God elect, God's elect. It's God who justified. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, even at the right hand of God making an intercession for us. God has declared us not guilty. However, there is this dope called Satan. Yeah, I call him a dope. Give me other, any other name and I'll call him those names too without fear. But he is also called the accuser of the brethren, both in Zechariah in the Old Testament, Revelations in the New Testament. The accuser of the brethren. He comes before God because he sees the Christians still committing sins. So he goes to God and he accuses us. The problem is, is that because God created us and named us, he has dominion over us, only he can accuse us. 
Now, there's this concept. I'm not, I can't remember what it's called. I probably should ask Warren this. One can't be tried for the same crime twice following a legitimate acquittal or conviction. What was that called? No, that's two episodes of Jeopardy back-to-back. What's it? Was that also the... Okay, I've heard it both ways. Okay, so... <laughs> so, he brings up these charges, and God looks at the court record, and he sees that his son has already paid the penalty, and we were acquitted, so he keeps throwing the cases out all the time. But we're still accused all the time by this enemy. Unfortunately, not only does he accuse us in front of God, but he also, because our brains are part of this earth, and Satan has been given dominion over the earth, he can accuse us in our minds in first person singular. I'm so stupid. I'm such a loser. That's first person singular. That's not coming from you. It's not coming from God. The reason it's not coming from you, if you're in Christ, this scripture says no one condemns you, including you. So the question might be, well, Bill, when that happens to me, what should I do? Well, first, you have to be able to be aware of it, to recognize I've just condemned myself. I'm not allowed to do that. Then what you can say next is, here's what I know to be true. I'm forgiven. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I am still loved. My father went through all this trouble just to rescue me. It is finished. I receive and accept God's work into my life. There's the battle right there. You are not condemned. God doesn't condemn you. You're not allowed to condemn yourself either. Now this verse here was like a speed bump for me. Anybody have the same thing? You're like, what's this? We're being killed all day long. <laughs> We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. This is really quoting a, a verse from Psalm 44. Talking about, if you read that whole psalm, that God lifts his people up and then he lets them be persecuted and then he lifts them up again back and forth. And the point is, there for your sake, this is happening. As Julie pointed out last week, there is no promise in Scripture that we won't suffer. There are, in fact, promises in Scripture where we will suffer. Suffering is really not new. Even before Jesus came, God's people suffered. And they usually suffered whenever God blessed them, by the way, because the world is envious. They suffered not only at the hands of the Gentiles, but also of fellow Jews, who were Jews by race, but not faith. We could look at verse <clears throat> excuse me, 36 this way, in a little different wording. Maybe in the form of a prayer but especially in a form of a mindset. <clears throat> Even though we are almost constantly facing some type of challenge or rejection or suffering, we have every reason to continue to hold on to our faith. We face suffering for your sake, Lord. We know the world despises you. We know the world hates everything about you, even while you continue to love the world. So, Lord, for your sake, as a part of working alongside of you to reconcile the world to yourself, we seek and we choose to respond to all of this suffering with joy and thanksgiving to allow them to see love in the midst of our suffering, even while they are killing us, just like your son did. And then in verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here, Scott's another identity statement. I am more than a conqueror. Let's all say that together. Ready? I am more than a conqueror. How true does that feel? <laughs> That's so true, right? The more you choose to perceive that and, and set your mind on it, feelings eventually fall in line. See, we don't live by feel. 
We live by faith. We don't live by flesh. We live after the Spirit. And so we are more than conquerors. Now, this is an interesting uh, expression because normally we see the word conquer in Scripture. It can also be translated as overcomer. But more than conquerors is really one word in the Scripture in the Greek, which is overconquerors, conquering more than. I'm a bit of a Star Trek guy. And one of my favorite episodes is the survivors, and they find this planet that's completely destroyed, for, like except this one acre where, where Kevin Uxbridge and his wife, Rishon, <coughs> are living. And they're trying to interact, and I'll keep the story short. They, the, Rishon is really a creation of Kevin Uxbridge, who is a dowd, who is a being of immense energy and vast powers. And it turns out that when this group of people, a species called the Husnak, attacks, attacked the planet, um, Kevin refused to fight. And so his wife leaves his side, and the Kusnak kill everybody, including her. And when Kevin finds her body, he becomes enraged. And so he explains to Captain Picard what he did. And he said, so when he found his wife, he said, so when I saw that, I killed all the Kusnak. That's how powerful he was. And the captain tries to console Kevin by saying, well, that's understandable. It was a battle. And Kevin replies with deep sorrow. He says, no, you don't understand. I destroyed them all. All of the Husnak, everywhere in the universe, 50 billion of them, I annihilated them completely. And he had basically then resigned himself to live on this planet with just his wife that he's created with his power. That's what you would call over-conquering. God does the same thing in various parts of Scripture, doesn't he, where he has his people destroy everything about the enemy. And I often get confronted by people who, who have a problem with that. They don't care for that way of God's destroying everything. And in 1 Samuel we see, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him and on the way he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Everything is being destroyed. And people have problems with that. Sometimes I have problems with that. But ancient Hebrew thinking was the one who gives a name has power over the object. So God created Adam and Eve and he named them. He named lots of things. By the way, as an aside, God didn't name the animals, did he? He had Adam name the animals. So we are supposed to have dominion over the animals, over the earth. But really, it's kind of the opposite's happened. It has dominion over us in the form of alcohol, tobacco, drugs, all those kind of things. It's supposed to be the opposite. We're supposed to have dominion over those things. Of course, the theological explanation is God has the right to execute judgment upon anyone. The Amalekites were rebellious against God. I also think of it this way. My little grandson, Liam, he likes to build towers and then knock them right over and laughs with joy and then builds them and knocks them over. He doesn't like it when sometimes his sister Eva gets there and knocks them over before he can. You see, that was not her tower to destroy. It was his tower to do with whatever he wanted to do with it. It's his choice. I loved how open Julie was with us last week about how she relates to God. You can mess with me, but not my children. I get that. I am right with you, sister. I have the same issue, except when God says to me, 
your children? You think they're your children? I forgot for a moment. Sometimes we forget, don't we? It's good to remember to give membership to again. All of this is his. He can do whatever he wants to do. And we can judge him if you want to. I would avoid that if I were you. See, we are overcomers. We are more than conquerors. This is what he's teaching us. There are things in our life that hold us back, that defeat us, that distract us, that interfere with our relationship with God. But God made us more than conquerors over those things. We can tell those things. (laughs) I am over you now. I often tell people, that which we resist persists, but that which we look at, that which we name, it'll disappear. We have dominion over it. Not, we're not the victims here. Well, in closing, I'd just like to share with you, a few months ago I received an email from a student who had attended a course I taught on communication. He wrote to ask me for advice about a unique speaking situation. His brother had been fighting cancer and was now dying of colon cancer, and he's asked my student, Patrick, to deliver the eulogy. My student was mostly concerned about crying during the eulogy. And so I wrote him back, and I told him several things. But one of the things I said to him was this. Your brother has given you the privilege and honor of honoring him. He's been a warrior this past year. He's been a real man. Real men are warriors, and warriors fight, and warriors die, and other warriors cry. Jesus wept. This eulogy is the battle your brother has given you to fight through. And I also told him to write the words, breathe and smile on his notes. Well, just to show you how God works... This past Wednesday, you see what I'm preaching on, Romans 8, 28 to 39. This past Wednesday morning, I get up with no energy, and I, I, I just slipped off a prayer, Lord, you're going to have to be my energy this morning. And I drug myself down to my office, and I opened up my email, and this was waiting for me. Dear Bill, I wanted to follow up with you and let you know that my brother Tim passed away on Sunday, January 27th. He was surrounded by me, his mom, his sister, and his stepdad. It was an intimate setting for his last breaths and last few beats of his strong, strong heart. The funeral service was Thursday, January 31st. I organized it to include three readings, one of faith from Matthew 6, one of hope from Romans 5, and one of love from John 15. Then I delivered his eulogy, speaking of the wonderful things about his life and the wonderful things he was able to do while he was sick because he had faith and hope instead of resentment and despair, and because he had love, and that, all of it, was for good. Romans eight twenty-eight. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body larger of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.